Let me ask if you would turn your attention to Romans chapter 1. The passage this morning is the end of the chapter, verses 28 through 32. Uh, and, and then what we'll do is we'll, uh, we'll read one more time this congregational reading from verses 16 and 17. Next week, we'll begin memorizing together a passage from chapter 3. Let me ask if you're able, if you'd please stand. And I will read the passage this morning, the passage that we're going to look at together, and then we'll read together Romans 1, 16 through 17. This is the Word of God, Romans chapter 1, 28 through 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the end of chapter 1. Let me ask you now if you would read together with me. Romans chapter 1, 16 through 17. This is the passage we're committing to memory. Let's read together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Thank you. You can be seated. And let me ask, would you join me in prayer as we pray for the preaching of God's Word? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning as we look together at Your Word that You would open the eyes of our hearts. We know, Lord God, that our propensity, our inclination is to hear of this conviction of sin and to think first and foremost about other people. But I ask, Lord, as we look at this passage, that you would give us eyes to see, first of all, our own hearts, that we would look into your word as a mirror, we would see a reflection of our own hearts, that we would know that we're desperately wanting, and that we would come to the foot of the cross. We thank you. And we ask that you would do this work by your spirit among your people this morning for your glory, O Lord, our God. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask all of these things. Amen. Well, if you've been with us or following along with us for any amount of time, you know that we are working through the book of Romans. And we are roughly six weeks into what we said would last three years. Okay, so six weeks into the book of Romans, and this is where we've come thus far. We saw the beginning of chapter 1, which was the introduction to Paul's epistle. And then we began in verse 18 with what we said is this methodical argument that is being built by the apostle 
Some people have called it the grand or cosmic indictment against all humanity. It is a court case that is being built. And this is the reason for Paul being very methodical and having a method in all that he does. He is building an argument against all of humanity. And it goes something like this. Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, he said that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And the wrath of God being revealed from heaven, men are without excuse because as the Apostle Paul says, God has revealed himself in all creation, but men suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. They refuse to see God. They hold down the truth. They cover it over. They avoid it. They want nothing to do with it. And so because men suppress the truth, their hearts are darkened. They have futile minds. They become fools while thinking themselves to be wise. And this, the apostle says, leads to idolatry. They worship the created things rather than worshiping the creator. Now, last week, what we saw was this. That process leads ultimately to a point where God, having enough of the futility of man and of his idolatry, hands him over. That's the phrase we saw last week. God gave them up. Last week, as we looked at God's giving up, we said he doesn't give them up to Satan so much. He doesn't give them up to peoples who come and destroy them as he did in the Old Testament. Last week, we saw that God gives people up primarily to their own sin, which maybe was surprising to many of you, that God says, you want this so much in your heart, eventually I will give you to it, and you will have the desires of your heart. And that's what we saw last week. It leads ultimately to the perversion, the immoral perversion we spoke about last week. Now, we open up verse 28 this morning and we see once more the phrase that God gave them up. Interesting this week, it's not a giving up to immorality or perversion. We see this week that God gives them up to a depraved mind, which has more to do with the intellect and thinking and and reasoning, which we'll talk about this morning as well. Slightly different than the perverse immorality of last week, all right? And this morning as we look at this passage, here's what I want to say. This is kind of a summary of, of chapter one. We've seen the, the slippery slope of the degradation of humanity. And so this morning we get a summary. We're going to talk about sin, three characteristics of sin we'll observe in the text this morning. That sin is more extensive than we ever imagined. It is more intuitively conflicting than we ever imagined, and that it is more distorting than we ever imagined. It distorts our perception of all reality. Those are the three points this morning, okay? So to begin in verse 28, the, the passage reads like this, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, it might better say, a better interpretation would be, since they did not see fit to retain a knowledge of God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So in this, we begin to see the extensive nature of sin. Let me tell you something. It's a little bit about the rhetorical nature of Paul's letter. We talk so much about the theology and the doctrine of Romans that we often miss the linguistic beauty of the arguments that Paul's making. And there's a lot in the, the epistle to the Romans that is just magnificent in the way that Paul uses language. And this is one of the ways that he does that. You think about it like this. I don't know if you've ever done this. I do this a lot. I have internal dialogues in my mind where I go back and forth and I rationalize one thing and I, I do a pros and cons and I argue with myself in my own mind. Some people call it having a, or being a devil's advocate. And sometimes if I'm not careful, I do that out loud as well and I think I'm alone in a room 
And, uh, and then I realized kind of embarrassingly that I'm not alone. And somebody's thinking, what in the world is that guy doing? He's talking to himself. You do that, I'm sure. If you ever uh, come to our office and I'm the only one there, you'll probably open the door and be like, who is he talking to? That's me, my internal dialogue, okay? This is one of the rhetorical tools that Paul uses in the epistle to the Romans. Throughout this epistle, I can count at least a dozen times where Paul anticipates the argument. He anticipates the objection. As he's reasoning about the gospel, he anticipates what someone will say when they object to something he's just said, and he will answer the question even before they can ask the question, okay? And we get that. It's a feeling as you go through Romans of a back and forth. Like Paul said something, but now he's going to answer a question, and he's going to go and say something else, but he's going to answer another question. And, and one of the things that's happening in verse 28 is that Paul is anticipating a particular objection. So let me tell you what the objection is. It's a reasonable objection, though I would say not truthful, okay? A reasonable but not truthful objection. And here's how the objection goes. Someone could rightly read the first 27 verses of Romans, could hear it read aloud, could understand the words, and could rightfully say, though not truthfully, could rightfully say, well, that's great, but that's not me, okay? You've probably felt that over the last few weeks. There's a lot of reading the beginning of Romans saying, well, look at that, those terrible people, okay? Thankfully, the wrath of God is being revealed against them, right? And, and so you could read through the beginning of Romans, and, and you could rightfully say, well, I don't suppress the knowledge of God. My heart's not darkened. I'm not worshiping idols. And the perversion that's just been described in the last three verses, that's not me, all right? I'm glad that Paul's written this letter for the people who need it, right? That could be your posture, Paul moves in verse 28 to begin to make an argument as if to say, you might have missed it, but this is about you, okay? And, and that's where Paul will go from verse 28 all the way into chapter 2. I think that verse 28 through 32 actually should be included as the beginning of chapter 2, but that's where we're moving as we go into chapter 2. The mirror is being held up, and we're meant to say, whoa, 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 that's not about just them, that's about me as well. And I see the brokenness of my heart, and I realize the need of the gospel. And so he says in verse 28, he gave them up. Remember, the universal argument, all humanity. He gave them up. That's you too. He gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. When you hear debased mind, you're probably, again, thinking immorality. Well, that sounds like moral perversion, doesn't it? Not exactly what Paul has in mind as he writes this, okay? A more literal interpretation of that phrase would be that he gave them up to a useless intellect, he gave them up to a broken way of thinking, all right? And really what Paul is now thinking about is not so much what they're doing with their bodies, but what's happening in their minds, okay? And the picture that he's painting is that in the way that men and women reason, in the way that they think, in the way that their logic works, and how they evaluate all things around them, God hands them over to a brokenness. That's how they evaluate their relationships. It's how they think about their careers. It's how they think about their money. It's how they think about what they prioritize in life and what is right and what is wrong. And all of that and the way that men and women think as they go down this slippery slope of degeneration, of degeneracy, God hands them over to a useless, broken intellect. And if you've ever said, if you've ever observed, because we do this much better when we look around us than we do it we... We look at our own hearts, but if you've ever said, what in the world are they thinking, right? How did they get that conclusion? 
What what is wrong with them? How can they even think that that is good? Right? How do they not see that that is so wrong and so evil? You're observing the corruption of the mind, which is being described as handing over to debased thinking or a debased mind. And so then God gives this list of things in verse 29 through 31. And he says it there. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Whew. It's a long list. As a matter of fact, it's 21 words long, 21 vices that Paul describes. It is the longest list of spiritual vices in the entire New Testament. Now, you won't find, you can flip through all the pages of the New Testament, you won't find a longer list of bad things that will be described as a, a vice, a vice for, for hum, human beings than this list. This is the longest list in all the New Testament, okay? And I want to tell you, as you think about this list, many people have tried to take this list and say, okay, well, how do we break this down? It's like there's three groups of four, or there's maybe like four groups of four, and there's adjectives here, and there's other words there, and here's the filling and the fullness, and and really, I want to tell you something. This is really not an extensive list. So that the more we try and break it down and figure out, like, why did Paul say this but not say that? Or why did he talk about covetousness but also talk about greed? And how are those things different? Or what does he mean when he speaks about faithless and heartless? And how are those things different? What is the nuance? Yeah, they're all different, but this is not an extensive list. Right? If Paul was trying to be extensive, we'd go like 100 words long, okay? Not an extensive list. It's meant to be a representative list, okay? It's a representative list of, of the, the very types of things that people do and say and experience when God hands them over to a debased mind. One, one author wrote it like this. He said, the purpose of this recital, which is the longest of its kind in the New Testament, is to show the general scope of social evils that are produced by the un qualified mind to which God has handed sinners over. Okay, so that's this list. So I'm not going to spend too much time trying to parse out the list for you. I think it's probably an unprofitable endeavor with the time that we have. Okay, so here's a list of characteristics of a person or of a humanity that has been handed over to a debased mind. Let me tell you what I think the value of this list is, okay? I think the value of this list is that there are many things on this list that most people probably call ordinary, right? These are just what it means to be human. And, and listen, here's, the here's really the value of the list. We have chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Then we have the whole exposition of it. The reality is we've just been given a list that most people would call ordinary that Paul is saying the wrath of God is being revealed for these things, okay? That's the value of this list. It's meant to be a list that awakens us where we say, oh, no, that's me. 21 things, probably half a dozen or a dozen that I can easily say, yeah, that, that's definitely true of me. This list is, is, is meant for all those who think, well, I generally do have it together. I'm not the, the morally perverse person described in verse 26 and 25 and 24. 
I'm not the person who suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness. This list is meant to broaden our understanding of unrighteousness so that everyone may say, oh, the wrath of God is for me as well. It's a list where you're meant to read this list and say, okay, I'm a terrific person. I'm a good neighbor. I bake cookies for the new person on the block. I open up my tool shed, and anybody who has need of tools, I, I let them have it, and people generally know me as a very good person, you're meant to read this list and say, well, do you have envy in your heart? The wrath of God is for you. It's for the person who says, all I have done my whole life is serve other people. I have given of my resources, of my time. My whole life has been about other people, and the apostle Paul would say, have you had strife with your neighbor? Have you ever had conflict? The wrath of God is for you. You stand in condemnation, right? I love what he does. Think about this. What is the, the category of the most innocent type of creature we could ever think about? The most innocent person we could ever envision in our heads? It's children, isn't it? Right? Children. You're, and you're sitting here and you're saying, look, mom and dad, the pastor just said we're innocent, okay? That's not what I said. I said it's what we can conceive of in our minds. The, the picture of innocence is of children, and yet Paul includes them as well, doesn't he? Children, have you ever been greedy? Have you ever been jealous? Have you ever disobeyed parents? I love that that one's in there, okay? I, I think it's there for a very important reason, right? We are meant to expand our understanding of the unrighteousness of the human heart and to reject all human conceptions of somehow finding a, a hiding place for the innocent person. And so that's why these words are here, that they would open our understanding to just how extensive is the unrighteousness of the rebellion of man against the living God. And so therefore, in the same breath, just how extensive is the wrath and condemnation of the living God on all sin. This is how R.C. Sproul put it when he was preaching this passage. He said, if we ask people whether they believe that man is basically good, the majority would answer yes. You know that to be true. Due to the impact of humanism on our culture, people believe that man is basically good and simply makes mistakes on occasion. Such thinking leads people to believe that they do not need Jesus. However, there is nothing we need more than Jesus. We tickle our imaginations if we say that we are basically good. The people who need to hear the gospel are not merely tainted by unrighteousness, they are filled with unrighteousness. That is how Paul describes our natural condition in Romans chapter 1. Okay, so sin is more extensive than we know. Second thing I think can be observed in these four verses is that, is that sin is more intuitively or internally conflicting than we know. And this is very important, I think. If you look at verse 32, after this list of vices that Paul gives, we get to verse 32, and he says this, though they, that would be all humanity, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. And I just want to stop there for a second. I don't know if that hits you as strange. It probably should strike you as strange if you've thought about it at all, okay? What Paul just said is not that the Jews or that the people of God, that they have his righteous decrees, and therefore they know that sin deserves death. But he says, they, referring back to all men, which was mentioned at the beginning of this text in verse 18 and 19, they, all humanity, know his righteous decrees, that those who do such things deserve to die. Now, you should rightfully be asking the question, 
How do all human beings know the righteous decrees of God? How is that possible? How can they fathom that? How is it that they know? The New American Standard says that they know the the righteous ordinances of God. How how do they have knowledge of those things? And, And you see, it's a very big leap from what we said two weeks ago, because two weeks ago we said that God has made himself plain to them. He has illumined himself in all of his creation. And we said that looking at the creation, all human beings can observe a few things about God. Paul says that they can see his uh, eternal nature and divine attributes. And two weeks ago, what we said was, we can look at creation and we can say, wow, look at that. It's beautiful. There must be a God. Look at the stars. His handiworks. There must be a creator who is magnificent and powerful and and has authority, we look at the Blue Ridge Mountains and we say, well, look at that. There must be a creative being who has authority over this because this does not happen by, by happenstance, okay? That's what we said two weeks ago, but let me ask you a question. Can we look at the stars in the heaven and say, well, look at that. I can understand the righteous decrees of God. I know that he has commanded me uh, not to gossip and slander. Perfect, Okay. Do we look at the Blue Ridge Mountains and say, okay, I have seen the Blue Ridge Mountains and I know that there's a God and therefore I know uh, that uh, thou shalt not lie. Okay, it is obvious to me. Of course not. That's not how it works. So there's a question then of what the Apostle Paul means when he says, they, all men know the righteous decrees of God and those who do such things deserve to die. How? How do all human beings know the righteous decrees of God? Well, this is, the, uh, okay, this is the second rhetorical tool that Paul uses. Often he will say something and he will just say it and leave it hang. Okay? So he says it and he doesn't explain it. And, and the people who are listening are like, all right, I'm following, I'm following. All right, good. And then wait, what did he just say? Okay, what do I do with that? What did he mean by that? And he comes back to it. As if to leave you your mind in conflict and then to resolve the conflict. And he comes back to it in chapter 2, verse 15. Here's what he says in chapter 2, verse 15. It says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Did you hear what he just said? He says that they have a form of the law written on their hearts. They have a form of the law written on their hearts. What the apostle Paul is moving towards is a comprehensive argument about the nature of humanity. And not only do we perceive in all of creation that there is a God and that he has attributes, divine attributes, but we also have written within us. 2.15 says, on our hearts. Again, the biblical uh, idea of heart is really the, 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 what is the nature of man on his soul, you might say. That we have written within us by the creative work of God who makes us. We have imprinted on our DNA, inscribed within us something of the law of God. That is that all human beings have a conception, because of the creative power of God, a conception of what is right and of what is wrong. 
and that the Apostle Paul said that they would then have an understanding that those who do such things, 29 through 31, deserve to die. Deserve to die. Now, you might be saying, well, how does that work, right? It was easy for me to say, oh, I, can see the, I can see the stars and say there's a God, but how does it work, the law of God imprinted on the hearts? What does that look like in the life of human beings? How can we observe that? I'll tell you a few ways I think we can observe it. I've observed, I think of this in, in sort of the very public ways it can be observed. I've, I've observed in, in ungodly people yet a shadow or an understanding of the moral law of God. I've seen, for instance, actors and actresses who have nothing to do with God, no moral compass at all, who will talk about the value of truthfulness or will speak about the vice of jealousy. And I always wonder when people who have no understanding of God, when they talk about those things, like, what are they talking about? Uh, what do they mean that it is good to be truthful or it is wrong to be jealous? I've seen athletes, professional athletes, who have made their whole life about honing their craft and making themselves to be strong and fit and building their whole worlds around them, who have $200 million contracts, who have the most arrogant, self-centered worlds that are built around them, and yet they will talk about the redemptive qualities of humility. And I'm like, what do you mean? Humility, I, what, how... How would that be valuable to you? I don't, I don't see what, what you're referring to. I have seen ungodly parents who will speak about, for their children, the value of kindness, right? Kindness. Well, why, why would you talk to your children about kindness? Uh, if there's no understanding of the law of God at all, I'd be talking to my children about how to be hard and to be cruel and how to take what you want and how to get it, right? That's to be the way of the world. And yet, there is a vestige, there is a shadow, there is something of a retention of an uh, understanding within the human heart of good and of evil. And those things emerge in kind of the strangest ways as we observe the world around us, okay? And, and so we, we see that happening. What we realize as the Apostle Paul continues his line of reasoning about the brokenness of humanity, what we realize is that within every human heart, just as there is an understanding of what is good, and goodness can be seen as productive or profitable, so there is an understanding that that which is evil will one day demand a reckoning, right? That that is something that is ingrained on every human heart, that somehow these things will have to be dealt with. And I tell you the truth, that is, it's faint and it's marred by sin, and sometimes it's hard to find or hard to see, but the Bible says it, and we can observe it in creation that this is indeed true. Some people have wrongly called it karma. Some people have wrongly called it the balance of the universe. Some people have given it various titles. But we can observe in the human heart some understanding of good and of evil. And so to that, the Apostle Paul says, for they know the righteous decrees of God, that those who do such things, as written in 29 through 31, they deserve to die. And they may not know all of it, they may not understand it completely, but these things are revealed to all humanity through the creative power of God. Let me tell you something. I, I haven't mentioned this much through uh, the first uh, 27 verses of, of Romans 1, 
But I would tell you that much of what we've read in chapter 1 actually is really important for us in our conversations with our unsaved friends and family because what we read in Romans 1 tells us that we actually understand more about what's going on in their hearts than they even understand about what's going on in their hearts. Do you realize that? That when we speak to our friends and our family who have not come in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and they tell us about their sinful lifestyles or the things that they choose to worship or the things that they choose to love, and you know in all of those conversations that there's always a little bit of internal conflict, right? You've seen it. You know it. Where they have given themselves to such and such a thing, and and these things are now important to them, and this is what they're serving, this is what they're following, but they tell you as they share from within their hearts, they tell you of the conflict they have. We know that's because of the imprint on the human heart that says, this is not good. That ought to give you the opportunity to speak and to speak truthfully, I think. I love to have conversations with people that I love who are unsaved and to say to them what well, sounds like there's a little bit of tension in your heart. Why do you think that is? Why do you think you're following the things that you think will satisfy you in the deepest recesses of your heart, and yet you feel a little bit of tension. You feel as if it's not quite right. You feel as if there's yet a brokenness, even though you follow the desires of your heart. Romans 1 tells us that we have this this knowledge of the human heart, that the unsaved person in the depravity of the mind does not have of their own hearts It gives us the ability to speak truthfully uh, to those who are not yet seeking the Lord God. I would tell you, I think this morning, it is more natural for, for humanity to understand the condemnation of God against sin than it even is for them to understand the grace of God, right? The grace of God is not so natural to their intuition as is the reckoning that will have to be accomplished for unrighteousness and evil. I believe... Every human being intuitively has an understanding of that in their heart. And so sin is more intuitively or internally conflicting than we know. Finally, last point here. Sin is more distorting than we ever could understand. Look at the end of verse 32. So here's what it says. Though they knew God, uh, God's decree that those who practice such things de- deserve to die... They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them, okay? So this is the distorting work of sin. Remember, we're moving down this slippery slope of the degeneracy of the human heart, and what we come to in verse 32 is, in Paul's line of reasoning, is really almost the bottom. We're kind of hitting the bottom. This is like, this is the epitome of the human heart moving away from God and now being almost uh, fully satisfied with, with sin and depravity. And here's what it looks like. That, think about this tension. They know the decrees of God, that those who do such things deserve to die, and yet they not only do them, but they approve of others who do them, okay? And isn't that so ironic and strange that they have two things going on in their heart. They say, I know those things deserve death, And yet, I'm not only going to do them, but I'm going to approve those who do do them. That is the epitome of the degeneracy of the human heart that has been given completely over to following sinful desires that lead only to corruption. 
Now, I want to tell you this word approve, interesting word. I think it's worth talking about. It is a Greek compound word. It goes like this, soon eudokeo. Okay, soon eudokeo. The Greek word soon means to be with or to be alongside of. Eudokeo means to think good of, okay, to think good of. The compound word literally reads like this, to think good of those you're alongside of, okay? To think good of those that you're with or that you're living with or that you're spending life with, okay? There's a personal nature to it, but there's also a positive nature to it. It would be as if to say that those you are alongside of or you're living life with, that you are approving of or enjoying or um, having a positive feeling over. I'll tell you the word that I think is best to capture the exact understanding of verse 32. It would read like this, okay? They not only do these things, but they celebrate with those who do such things. That's the idea of the word. It is a celebratory word. It means not only to pragmatically think it's good, but also to personally enjoy it along with others. And as you think about then this progression of sinning, but not only sinning and celebrating and approving those who do such things, you realize that this really truly is the bottom of the corruption of the human heart. Listen to what John Murray said. He said, this passage tells us this, we are not only bent on damning ourselves, but we congratulate others in the doing of those things that we know have their issue in damnation. This is the lowest point of degradation. To sin, even in the heat of passion, is evil. But to delight in the sins of others shows that men are of set purpose and fixed preference, wicked. Therefore, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against these things, okay? This is Paul's explanation of the human heart that is left to his own devices. Now, I would tell you this morning, I think there's two things going on. I mean, in one sense, these things are easily observable in the world around us. You're probably thinking of ideas already in your head, right? And that's true, but there's also, the, again, the mirror that's being held up to our own hearts. We have to say, okay, how do we do that? These things are easily observable in the world around us because the world around us so often is not only doing what God calls sin, but it is being celebrated, right? Okay? I was, I, I'll give you a few examples. I was thinking about these T-shirts that now say, I had an abortion. You've probably seen those, right? This is the, this is the epitome of taking something that is sin and saying, okay, not only am I going to participate in it, but I'm going to celebrate it. The purpose of celebrating it is actually to normalize it. So if we celebrate it with others, we begin to normalize it. And once we normalize it, we're all on the same plane. We're all doing the same thing, okay? So that's the epitome of it. We, we talk often about homosexuality. We talked about that two weeks ago. And, and gay pride, what is gay pride? Gay pride is an elevating of something that is sinful to make it become celebrated and then to make it be normalized. And if we normalize it, then everyone's doing it. And then, you know, before we know it, it has become just the acceptance, okay? It's acceptable and it's good, that's what Paul's speaking about here. But again, let me tell you something. It's not just out there. It's in here as well. This is, again, this, this end of the chapter, going to chapter 2, it's not about just them. As a matter of fact, it's not really about them at all. That's not what Paul's epistle to Romans is about. It's about us. Think about the ways that we do this as well. I was thinking about how 
This morning, I was thinking about how our, our television shows, the things that we watch are really just one big celebration of, of sin, of sinfulness. I was thinking about how many television sh- shows celebrate the sin of adultery, right? Uh, and we find that to be comical. That is the, that is the epitome of celebrating. You, you might like to watch shows like The Bachelor, okay? I've, I've never seen The Bachelor, but I know people who love it. Ba- the Bachelor is the celebration of adultery, is it not? You take a bunch of people, you put them together, and you look at some of these strange situations where they get to have all these promiscuous relationships, and we get to observe, and you know, how exciting or titillating or fun, or I don't know what that is, but, but that's the, that is the exact thing that Paul's speaking about. They not only do these things, but they approve of them. They celebrate them. They congratulate. They participate in. They observe. They find uh, to be entertaining these things that lead to death. Again, the very thing the Apostle Paul is identifying in our own hearts. You think about our culture. Our culture is all about me and myself. And those are some of the things, the very things that Paul identified as spiritual vices in verses 29 through 31, the arrogance and the pride and the selfish ambition. And, and again, we live in a culture that celebrates me, right? That's what it's all about. You go to 90% of the counselors in town, and they will tell you that's what your problem is. You ain't celebrating yourself enough, okay? I've got to focus more on you and think more about how good you are and how, how great you are, and, and people have it all wrong, okay? That's, that, that's the culture that we live in that celebrates pride and arrogance, and, and we need those things to uh, sustain our lives. That's the, the lie that the culture tells you, okay? These are the very things that the Apostle Paul says, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. He is saying this is where all of what has just been described, this is where it all leads. It leads to a place where the heart has been darkened and we've given our hearts to idolatry and we've suppressed the truth in unrighteousness and, and God is giving over and he's giving over to immorality, he's giving over to a debased mind and when he gives over to these things, eventually the, the culture and the people and the community and all humanity, they begin to say, not only do I do these things and not only will I do them, even though I know them in my heart to be wrong and that they deserve death, but I will approve and I will celebrate them together with other people and misery loves company and we will all do this together. But that is the epitome of corruption and degeneracy of the heart. That's where the Apostle Paul is leading us. So let me just tell you this to sort of summarize chapter 1 and to conclude this morning. Let me just tell you this. If you haven't noticed, the argument that is being built is an argument that is meant to communicate to us. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, meant to communicate to us the depth and the breadth, and the width, and the extensive nature of human sin, how it is more corrupting, and debilitating, and distorting, and extensive. The human heart is, is in, in sin is more than we ever know in those things. It is degraded by sin. It has no understanding of what is right. It calls right things wrong and wrong things right. And the mind is confused and the heart is darkened. The heart is futile and there's foolishness, not wisdom, 
we're being led astray and this corruption and immorality and all these things are building and building and building and the human mind and the human heart are more corrupted than we could ever imagine. That's where Paul is going and he's going to build this argument and it's going to feel like he's piling on again and again and again because though we may say it a hundred times over, we do not understand the nature of sin in the human heart. And the heart is more entangled in these things, and it's more engrossed in these things, and it's more infatuated in these things. It is more satisfied in these things than we can ever imagine in our minds. And let me tell you this morning why that's so important. It's so important because it connects to the rest of what's going to be laid out in Romans. And let me tell you something. When you get to Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8 and Romans chapter 9, you are going to struggle mightily with the sovereignty of God unless you first understand the sinfulness of the human heart. I mean, you're going to get there in in chapter 7, 8, and 9, and you're going to say, whoa, 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 wait a second. God chose me before the foundation of the earth? That doesn't sound right. He loved me before I ever loved him. His spirit worked in my heart before I ever had a desire for him. He predestined me to be conformed to the likeness of his son. He chose me in Christ Jesus. He loved me before I ever even knew him. What does that even mean? How can that be possible? And you're going to want to fight against it. You're going to say, well, the free will of man, of course. I can choose good or I can choose evil. God didn't really choose me. He didn't really love me before I loved him. These ideas in Romans 7, 8, and 9, they're going to be unfathomable to you. You won't have a category for them. You will be like totally confused when we get to the potter who makes two vessels. You will not understand the things that are coming in Romans if you don't first understand the sinfulness of the human heart. And if you don't understand that we are not just dying in our sin or we're not just kind of incompatible or we're not just a little bit rebelling against God, but that the word of God says that we were dead in our sin and that we are completely broken and completely unregenerate and completely do not desire the things of God. You see, the reality is this, okay? The reality is as we think about this passage that we must understand the sinfulness of the human heart if we're to understand the saving work of the Lord God. Here's how it is. Our only hope is a sovereign and gracious Savior who utterly disregards our desires, the desires of our hearts, and intercedes in our lives without our permission to show us the things that we cannot see so that we can seek the things that we do not want, to come to a God that we do not love for a salvation that we believe we have no need for. That's what's going to happen in the book of Romans. And if you don't understand sin, you won't understand the need for that. Let me say it again. Our only hope is a sovereign and gracious Savior who utterly disregards our desires, the desires of our hearts, and intercedes in our lives without our permission to show us the things that we cannot see so that we can seek the things that we do not want to come to a God that we do not love for a salvation that we think we have no need for. That's where the rest of this letter is going. This is what Paul means to show 
as he writes this epistle to the Romans. And all I can say to you this morning is I can't wait. Can't wait to go through the book of Romans with you. It's coming, but this is the foundation for everything that comes after this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you. We thank you that you have not left us in our sin. And, and I thank you, Lord God, that you have taken the time here in this epistle to show us just how corrupt our hearts actually are. And we think we have a good understanding of it, and we think we understand our sin, and we think we understand our brokenness, and we think we understand just how corrupt we are, and, and Lord God, uh, the rebellious nature of our human hearts, but I thank you, Lord God, that you continue to show us. And you show us how broken we are, and you show us how far we have fallen, and you show us that we have no desire for you apart from your work in our hearts, and you show us that we not only do these things and we sin, but we also celebrate these things, and we celebrate them in the world around us, and we encourage others towards the same end, and that is who we are apart from your Spirit, apart from the grace of God. And so I ask, dear Father, that the more we see our own hearts, the more we would be humbled. And that as your spirit works, it would move us to say, not of us, but of you, Lord God. Not of anything in and of us. Not because we sought you out or because our minds were more enlightened or our hearts were more soft. Not because you looked ahead and you saw that maybe we would respond to you. Not because we are good people. Not because we have loved others better or because we have sought you. Not because of anything in and of us, but because you have set your affection on us. And you said before the foundation of the earth, I will make them my people. And I will take them out of darkness and I will bring them into light. And I will make them to know me and to love me. And I will show them my mercy through my Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, dear Father, for this. Because we are desperately needy and wicked. We thank you for your Spirit. And we thank you for your Son. And we thank you for your love, Father God. And we ask and pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. Amen.